Well, y'all doing all right? Okay, good to see everybody this morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. I'm excited and sad because we're ending our series called Grow, The Secret to Spiritual Maturity, so that we're going to be finishing that out today. I'm sad because it's been challenging and helpful. How many of you guys have felt like it's been good over the last five weeks to help you learn what growth, Christian growth, looks like? I see some head noddings. Okay, that's good. Just a few of you, anyway, feel like it's been worth your time to be here, so I'm glad about that. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sad because we're ending it, but then I'm excited because we're going to start a new series next week called Jonah. So we're just going to get into the book of Jonah, the Old Testament book of Jonah, the reluctant prophet, you know, who didn't want to go to Nineveh and share God's message of mercy and grace with those people. And so I feel like maybe some of us are going to find ourselves there. Maybe we find ourselves there sometimes now where we're reluctant to take God's message of mercy and grace to those around us, especially those that we don't like or maybe are frustrating to us, and that's what it's going to look like for Jonah. So I think that's going to be super helpful. And yeah, the joke begins now that, yes, it's a whale on there, but it does say fish in the text. Okay, so now you guys will come into it next week when I give you the joke again, you'll realize what I'm talking about. Because even though we have a whale, it says fish in the text. Was it a whale? Was it a fish? We don't know. We won't spend a lot of time there theologically next week parsing that out, okay? But there it is. That, that's, that's, we went with the whale because it looks cool on the graphic. But we're going to be there next week. So today, though, funny enough, we're going we're gonna to continue talking about sharing God's message of mercy and grace next week when we get into the series because today we're going to start that conversation with go. That's our topic for today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8. If you want to turn to those places in your Bible, put your finger there on one. They're very close to one another. But as we've talked about throughout this entire series, we've laid out five practices that are going to help us grow in our Christian faith. Gospel, gather, group, give, and go, right? That's what we've been talking about. So I hope that you guys have used that handout that you have still on your seats there for the last week uh, to go over those with yourself or, or the uh, bookmark that we have. We may have some of those left. I'm not sure if they'll be out in the back on the table on the way out. I don't know. The bookmarks that have the gospel prayer, I don't know, maybe. That we, we could ask, ask somebody for one if you want one. Those have been helpful tools, though. All these practices, of course, start with G for your convenience, of course. We have to have the alliteration here. And they've all been right there in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, haven't they? We've seen all of these things. We saw in the early church themselves, they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. That's gospel. We saw them gathering at the temple on a weekly and sometimes daily basis for a more formal gathering, right? We saw them grouping together in homes throughout the week. We saw them giving to those that they saw had a need. And then today we're going to talk about going. When they had the Lord add to their number day by day, they're going to share the gospel. And I'd like to point out before we get into our text here, and as we consider each of these five practices and we look in at ourselves and our church, Redemption Church, to see who's actually started practicing these things, we do recognize that there's what we might call a progressive disconnect as we get into each one of these five practices. So what I mean is as we look at each practice, the further we go down the list, there's going to be less and less of you who practice them. And that's just kind of statistically how it works out. So we recognize that. Because most Christians, if they call themselves a Christian, they will eventually at some point in their life be baptized. They will probably at some point spend some time reading God's word or praying to God, even if it's minimally, that will happen. But then even less people will gather on a weekly basis with other believers. 
because of the baggage that might come with that in our cultural context, perhaps. Maybe there's a, there's a trust issue. They don't trust established religion or something like that. Or they don't want to be, or they just don't prioritize their time. They're doing other things on Sunday mornings. Whatever it is, less people will gather. But then also, less people, even more, more than that, even less people will, get, will group together in homes throughout the week. That maybe it gets too real. Maybe the community gets too real. They, they have to open themselves up. And they're not comfortable with that. There's a trust issue there. Perhaps they don't see the necessity of get, grouping with other people in homes to grow. Whatever the case is, less people will do that. They'll prioritize work or, or school or uh, sleep or something else over, over get grouping with other believers. But then even less, of course, will give because of the obvious reasons in our culture, the, the idolatry with wealth that we all seem to have as Americans. But then finally, even less than that will go and share their faith in a meaningful way with others. So there's a progressive disconnect in all five of these things that modern Christians just kind of self-select as to whether or not they're going to do or not do these things in their life, the least of which will actually be to share the gospel in a meaningful way that calls someone to faith and repentance. So I think it's worth asking, though, if we recognize that that's going to be the case progressively, why is that? Like, well, what causes that kind of progressive disconnect in faith and practice for Christians, especially with taking the gospel that we've believed to become Christians to other people. Maybe you could say it's the poor examples of evangelism that we've seen in American Christianity over the last 100 years, like the gimmicky tracts, the gimmicky sales pitches, and all those kinds of things. Maybe you could say we're afraid of persecution. Maybe that's part of it. Uh, maybe, maybe you could say things like, well, uh, you know, we don't want to offend other people, or whatever it is. Other excuses abound, I'm sure. But I th if, if we're looking at it and we're being honest, I think it's primarily because we miss one fundamental thing about God's mission that we're going to see in Acts chapters 1 and 2 today. And, 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 and this is what I think we miss. And you can write this down if you're taking notes because this is our main point. I think we miss that God's Spirit has come so that we can go. We miss that it's God's Spirit that's come to us in the gospel, in our belief, so that we can then go to others. That's what we miss. It goes back to how we started the series. You guys remember the secret. I gave it to you right up front. The secret to spiritual growth is that we can never be motivated by obligation or duty or religion or law. We always have to be motivated by love. That's how it works. It, our love has to be a response to God's love for us in the gospel. That's the secret. But there is one more part of that secret, maybe that I've kind of held back here until today, and it's just this small part of it that the power to grow can only come from God's Holy Spirit working in your heart through that love of the gospel that you've believed, right? It's the, the message is, is the power, but then that power has to be delivered somehow. We, we've been talking about Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. See, the message itself is the power, but it's, what's the substantive means that the power comes to you through, that God motivates you through this message, in other words, what's the source of the power? What's well, His Holy Spirit working through your belief in the gospel? It's His Holy Spirit working in your life to change you from the inside out. God's Spirit is where the power comes from. God's Spirit's the only source of power that can help us grow. It's kind of like a balloon floating in the air. You know, if a balloon's purpose is to float, which it is for the sake of argument, okay? A balloon's purpose is to float, and it has to be filled up with the right kind of stuff if it's going to float, Right? Like, you can't just blow up the balloon with your air that's heavy with carbon dioxide and, and, and you know, all, all, kind of, all manner of germs and other stuff. 
you have to fill it up with something different if it's going to float. You have to fill it up with helium. That's the only way that it's going to float like it ought to float. And oftentimes I feel like Christians are filled with the wrong stuff. We're weighed down because we're filled up with things like social media and the opinions of others and the culture wars that we perceive around us and politics and, you know, achieving personal goals or personal success or even good things like family and other things like that. And when we don't float like we ought to, which in this case would mean when we're not satisfied or filled with joy or excitement or a sense of purpose, even with the good things, then we wonder why we feel so lost. And it's because we're filled with all the wrong stuff, as good as those things might even be. Because we need to be filled with God's Spirit, who gives us that sense of purpose and excitement and joy, and He takes us soaring to the heights where we ought to be, and then everything else comes after that, right? Seek the kingdom first, and then all the things that you need will be added to you. That's the idea here. Oftentimes, you might even go to church to get filled up with the wrong stuff. You know, instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit when you leave here, maybe you're filled with a sense of guilt and shame and regret over the way that you've lived your life, and now you need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You need to try it really hard now when you leave here because you've heard the application to the sermon, you're like, I need to be doing that better. Man, you're getting filled up with the wrong stuff if that's how you're leaving these gatherings every week. That's not what you need. You don't need a smack on the bottom to get you to fly back up in the air. You need to be filled with the right stuff before you leave so that you'll float on your own. It won't work if you try to just come in here so that I can smack you back up and say, you need to try harder and do this, and then you float, and then you start to slowly over the week sink back down because you're filled with all the wrong stuff. You need to believe the gospel today and let God's grace fill you back up with the helium of his love and his presence and his Holy Spirit so that you can soar on your own, nothing weighing you down in that way. And the only way that's possible is if you learn that God wants a deeper intimacy with you than you possibly ever could have imagined. He wants to know and be known by you in a way that you have yet to see. And he's, he's enabled that intimacy through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the gospel. And then followed by Jesus' ascension, which is a major part of that. And we'll see that from Acts chapter 1 today. And it's important that Jesus goes back to heaven after he is raised from the dead. Because now, even though he wouldn't be with his followers in body, he says he would be with them in spirit. God's Spirit living in each of us, coming to us because Jesus went back to the Father. So that's going to be something we'll talk about just a little bit today. Too many of us go through the Christian, our Christian lives never connected to or filled with God's Spirit. We, we don't understand what it looks like. It's mysterious, and so we just kind of like put it on the back burner. But today, hopefully, we'll see some of it from Acts chapters 1 and 2 today. What I want to do is start in Acts chapter 2. We'll make an observation there, and we'll move to Acts chapter 1 and spend... The majority of our time there. But Acts chapter 2, verse 47. We won't rehash all of 42 through 47. Let's just read 47, really the last part of it. Luke wrote this. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And the statement begs the question again, how? How, how was the Lord adding to their number? Well, we've said it before when I started the series a few weeks ago. Romans 10, 14 but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. So see, the Lord added to the church daily 
by sending his people to go and tell others the good news about Jesus. Here's what I want you to write down if you're taking notes. A going church is a growing church. A going church is a growing church. Now let me just make that clear because I think some of you might have just heard me say the exact opposite. You might have heard a growing church is a going church. As in, you need to be growing spiritually so that you will be going, in order to combat the progressive disconnect, start growing in these other areas so that you can then go. But that's not it. That's not it at all. And that's not what we see here in Acts 2 or we're going to see in Acts 1. It's actually a going church is a growing church. Going is part of God maturing you. Going is part of God making your faith stronger. So if you go, if you prioritize going, then you will begin to spiritually mature. Then you'll grow. It's actually part of the process. It's, it's like that with a lot of things, you know? Whenever you have to articulate what you believe to somebody else and teach them about it, it helps you learn more. Yet You internalize that, and then you are able to articulate it better the next time you share it with either somebody else or share it with them again. It's like that with your kids. You know, If you're a parent and you have children, you understand what it's like to teach children certain things. Have you ever tried to explain where babies come from to your kids? <laughs> okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to give you the birds and the bees talk today. Okay, I promise that. But it's a challenge, is it not? Listen, if, you're, if you don't have kids, just hear me say, it's a challenge to try to communicate these things because you, you're on different maturity levels, right? So they're on a lower maturity level right now because they're kids. Or you've got to figure out language to use that they can understand to, to meet them where they're at in their development process. It usually means starting off with some, some small information that can, you can then piece together over time using words that are both accurate but also not confusing and you have to define things in a way that they can understand. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to do that. But over time, then you learn how to articulate it more clearly in those ways, right? If you just practice it, if you just jump into it and figure it out, then you start to grow in how you articulate it. It's a lot like sharing Jesus with somebody who's never heard the gospel. You're on different levels of spiritual maturity and development, Right? You have to meet them where they're at so that you're not using language that's churchy and confusing, but that's clear and things they can understand. Everybody has different backgrounds, different experiences. So the best way to learn how to share with people is to just go ahead and start to share. That's how you learn. That's how you grow in doing that. That's part of the process. It's like how muscles grow, right? We understand this with working out. When you lift weights, it tears and stretches your muscles so that when they recover, they grow back bigger and stronger. And so you just get into the process. It's like, it's like that in your faith as well. You just start exercising and you'll grow and you'll, you'll gain strength in how to do that. You'll stretch yourself and it'll mature you. See, on top of you personally growing in spiritual maturity, it'll add to our number day by day because that's what it says here in Acts chapter 2. It'll add to the number of believers in the church universal and in our local church as you do that. We've mostly been talking about growing ourselves in spiritual depth, but really this also grows the church in numerical width, right? Because you're sharing the gospel with people and they're believing. Not everybody's going to believe, but some will, the Bible tells us. And, so, and we know that because that's some of your stories, right? Somebody shared the gospel with you and now you're added to the church, and so it'll grow us in numbers. So both quality and quantity, you might say, will grow as we share the gospel. And you know, a healthy church is a growing church. There's no way around that. If a church isn't growing, then it's probably not a healthy church. Now, you don't want to switch that because a growing church may not always be a healthy church, right? But a healthy church is always a growing church. 
That's just how it works with anything in life, with plants, with families, anything, okay? So we have to recognize that a healthy church is a growing church. But, but let's turn to Acts chapter 1 now and see how God's Spirit has come so that we can go. And I want to focus on verse 8, but I want to read starting in verse 1 just to give us the context for this area here of Scripture. And this is Luke writing to a guy named Theophilus. He said, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Verse 8, and here's the key, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So I think this is one of the clearest scriptures that reveals to us God's purpose for the church in this present time. You know, we've read the Great Commission before from Matthew 28. It's Matthew's version of what Luke is saying here. In Matthew, he says, All authority has been given to Jesus, so go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. But this is Luke's version of that here. It's Luke's version of the Great Commission for the church. And he shows us here in this, and you can write this down as well, our purpose as God's church is to be a witness to God's power. Our purpose as the church is to be a witness to his power in, in the world. And that's what Luke is talking about in this letter here. He was writing to a Greek guy named Theophilus, who was probably in the upper echelons of society, probably well-educated and all of that. And in his first gospel account, in the gospel of Luke, He's writing to persuade people about who Jesus is. And, and now in Acts, he's doing the same thing. And he's showing the effects of Jesus coming and the Holy Spirit now after Jesus has ascended into heaven. So he's trying to persuade this guy of God's power to save and God's power to work in the world. And it's clear from the first few verses that he's writing to, as a witness, to persuade Theophilus, who might be a skeptic, along with any other skeptics that are reading this. That's what a witness does, Right? A witness is somebody who's seen or heard something and they're trying to attest to it so that people can get a picture of reality the way that it really is. They give a testimony, you might say. We see this in a court of law. Witnesses give testimony so that they can get to the bottom of what's really happened in any given situation. And that's what Luke's doing here. Jesus had been crucified. He'd risen from the dead. It was the claim. And now he's showing that Jesus ascended back into heaven to be with God in spirit once again, like he was before the creation of the world, like he was before his incarnation. And Luke is experiencing or explaining to a skeptic why that's a significant thing. Now, you might look in at that and say, well, that's great for Luke. But you know, that was 2,000 years ago when people were way more superstitious. And they, they were way more likely to believe in miracles. And they were way more likely to be spiritual and all of these different things. We live in an age of science, don't we? We live in an age of knowledge where people know that that's, that kind of thing can't happen. We're, we're skeptics. Everybody's a skeptic. People today are much less likely to believe. And listen, if that's your, your view on how this works in our context, I would just push on you just a little bit because I think that's a wrong-headed way to think. 
I, I caution you there because the New Testament writers, all of the authors in the New Testament are writing in a defense of something that seems impossible to their audience. So they're, I mean, Luke is writing to the, Theophilus here saying, listen, this really happened. I know it's hard to believe, but this really happened. I mean, in ancient Rome, when somebody died, they understood that you didn't come back from that. Maybe even more than us. They didn't have modern medicine like we have, right? They didn't have ways to extend your life and to deal with easy things, you know, easy sicknesses that can easily be healed with just one small dose of medication. So they knew that when you died, you died, okay? You didn't come back from that. And, and what Luke is trying to tell him is, listen, no, Jesus came back. And, and I know it's hard to believe, but that's the point. The point is that God did something miraculous in reality in a way that we don't understand that doesn't normally happen so that we could prove or he could prove to us that we can believe in Jesus and, and that he was who he said he was. So if that happened, if Jesus really did raise from the dead and really did ascend in to the world, if that happened, which Luke is arguing it did, and which we believe as Christians, if we believed in Jesus, then what Jesus tells his disciples here in this passage is really special. And it's crucial for us to understand because he tells them something even more special is going to happen than his resurrection. He says that when he ascends into heaven, he's going to send God's own spirit to reside in each of those who believe. That's what's crazy. The spirit's going to come upon people. Before he was crucified in the upper room as they ate dinner together, Jesus explained some of this to his disciples. He was explaining a few things. If you go back and read John chapters 13 through 17, and he told them what he was about to do, what was about to happen to him. He was going to be handed over to the religious authorities. He was going to be betrayed. He was going to be crucified. He was going to leave him for a little while, but then he would come back. And he would go be with the Father, but he would be, come and be with them in a, in a different way. And, he, and all this was kind of confusing. He said, Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. And then he goes on to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. I mean, really confusing stuff for the disciples at the time, but really deep stuff. That now on the backside, with the Spirit having come to his followers, we can start to understand what he's talking about. How can Jesus' followers do greater things than he did? Heal the sick? Raise the dead? What's he mean by going to the Father? What's he mean by his disciples being in him and he in them? It's all very confusing, but he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming upon them when they believe, bringing the power of God and the gospel into their lives. Once he went back to the Father, then he could directly intercede on their behalf in heaven with God, the God of the universe, as a part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on their behalf so they could experience this power in reality right now where they are. He said, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. I mean, this is incredible stuff. Like, this would have blown their minds. It should blow ours. I know that we have churchy talk, you know, talking about the Spirit and all this kind of stuff. But man, this is a really big deal. We can experience the power of God in our lives. The Spirit can come upon those who believe and empower them to continue spreading the good news about Jesus wherever they go. And, you know, we may not be able to fully understand how that works. And I think that's maybe what scares some of us. And, 
if I'm being honest, what, what has scared me over the years and why I don't fully understand this, because it's hard to see, it's invisible. We don't fully understand. We can't grasp the nuts and bolts of how it all works, but we can't always see the results of the Holy Spirit in our lives, can we not? And in the Bible, the results are almost always visible through someone speaking on behalf of or about God and his salvation for people. That's how you know the Spirit's present. You, you, can, you can see him work, you can see the effects of him working even if you can't see him. It's like the wind blowing, right? You can't see the wind. That's why the Bible uses that language to describe him. You can't see the wind, but you can always see the effects of the wind on things. Well, you can write this down. When the Spirit comes, he inspires and empowers people to speak about God. That's how you can see the Spirit in your life. That's how you know the Spirit resides with someone. You can see the effects of it through their speech and what they're talking about in their lives. I, I know that in our day and time, people tend to try to sense the Spirit, right? Or maybe even try to conjure Him up with things like performing a seance almost with words and verbiage and try, you know, using different, quote, tongues and all these different things. But listen, the Holy Spirit being sent to those who believe is a promise that God gives to each of His followers. God's given His Spirit to those who believe and he's not hard to spot if you understand what it is that shows us his presence. Those who believe speak on behalf of God. We're ambassadors. That's, that's what it means. In the Bible, wherever the Spirit gets poured out, even in the Old Testament, we see it producing speech in people's lives. They're speaking on behalf of as a prophet or they're speaking about God to others. You know, if a prophet got filled with the Holy Spirit, he would speak God's words to God's people. You remember the story of King Saul, perhaps, getting filled with the Holy Spirit? He prophesied. King David, when he would get filled, he would speak and prophesy and write psalms. It always produced, produces speech when, when people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Luke picks that up here in Acts. And we see in Acts chapter 2, they'd go out and speak on behalf of God to everyone who would hear the message. And that's why we saw Peter preach this gospel message just in the beginning of chapter 2 of Acts that we talked about a few weeks ago. And when that happened, the Holy Spirit came upon everyone and people around Jerusalem could hear the message in their own language supernaturally. The Spirit poured out, produced, speaking about God on His behalf. So there's this biblical pattern that Luke is tapping into that shows us when the Spirit comes into someone... We speak then on behalf of God, inspired and empowered by the Spirit. And it's funny, the disciples still haven't quite gotten the whole picture yet, of course. You know, I mean, it's understandable. They're not filled with the Spirit yet. They don't see it yet. But they do start talking about the end times when Jesus brings all this up, which is just, just like a bunch of, you know, Christians, right? He's like, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to fill you with my own Spirit. And they're like, well, is the end times here, Lord? You know, or is it time to restore the kingdom then? Well, you know, I mean, and that's understandable. I don't want to be too hard on him, right? I mean, you see Jesus come back in a resurrected body. He's talking about filling everybody up with God's very presence. Maybe you start to think, okay, maybe this is the end. Are we there? Is it time? And Jesus, as only Jesus could, he says this, that's none of y'all's business. I would like to think that he said it just like that, all right? That's not, he's, he's like, that's not for you to know. You don't need to know when God's going to do all that. That's none of your business. What you need to do is receive the spirit that I'm sending to you, and then your business is to be a witness for me throughout the city, throughout the region, and throughout the world. That's your business. The way 
Pastor Alistair Begg says it, is this over here, the restoration of God's kingdom, that's none of your business. But this over here, the mission of God, that's all of your business now if you're in the church. So be about God's business of witnessing to the world. You can write that down as well if you're taking notes. Be about God's business of witnessing to the world. I think American Christians so often focus on such pedantic things. And yes, I use the word pedantic. I love that word. It's a great word. Pedantic. We get caught up in all these details that don't matter, especially in theology, but maybe even in the culture, right? We're all on social media. I'm telling you, none of that matters. This matters. We parse out the left behind books, you know, and start looking for signs of the times with Russia and Iran and all these silly things. Or we get caught up in being filled with the Spirit, maybe in a selfish way, where we just want God to bless us. Everything's about us. We want, we want God to bless us, make our lives more comfortable. We want to feel good. So we want the blessing that the Spirit brings. But it seems that the business that we ought to be about is what the Spirit has empowered us to do. And that's to be a witness about what all God has done in our lives, what we've seen and heard. Have you ever been in an organization that focuses on all the wrong things? It's so frustrating, right? I mean, when I first got to the pregnancy center in Greensboro, that's exactly what it was like. The executive director there, not to say that she wasn't a believer or anything like that, but man, she focused on all the wrong things. She was focused on keeping us the same. She didn't want things to change. She was focused on keeping the ministry, quote, safe. She was focused on caring about uh, the, the current donors and making sure that they were happy and taken care of. The one thing she didn't seem to care about was being more effective in what we were actually there to do which was to help women face their unplanned pregnancy without fear. It's like everything else was important, and the mission was on the back burner. It was ancillary to everything else she was doing. And, and you know, we started to get in there, and, and the board ended up letting her go because they saw that, thankfully. And I got in there with the current executive director, and God used it to change things and put it back on the right track because, yeah, sometimes it might mean making some donors uncomfortable or, or taking some risks that don't feel safe, or, or cutting things out that are either unnecessary or radically changing things that were necessary, but they weren't doing things effectively. But see, in the end, you have to be willing to focus on the one thing that matters, the one thing you're there to do, and everything else is ancillary to that, right? That's how it should be for us in the church. We're primarily to be witnesses to the world. Everything else in the Christian life ought to support that. Every decision we make, every word we speak, every action we take, every enjoyment and pleasure that we have, literally everything serves the one thing that God has purposed for us to do. I, I, I hear people attribute things to God all the time, and I think that's right. God, God provides and blesses things, you know, blesses us with things in our life. They'll, people will say, yeah, I, I got that job because God provided it miraculously. It was a God thing, right? Or, or you know, we're able to get that house through just the right circumstances, God miraculously provided, it was a, it was a God thing. Or, or, yeah, I got into that school and I didn't think I had the grades and the, the ability to, but God provided it miraculously. It was a God thing. And listen, I believe that's true. God blesses us. He's a good father. He wants to bless us. And that's half right if that's all you believe about it. Because we had a series in Genesis uh, last year called Abraham. And we remember from Abraham's story that God blesses us not just for our sake. It's never just for our sake. Yeah, he blesses us, and he's a good father. He wants to bless us, but it's always also so that he can bless other people through us. Every single time. Those two things aren't opposed to one another. You can't say, God just blessed me. It's a God thing, just for me. No. 
God puts you in your home miraculously so that you can be around the people that are right there. That's exactly why he put you there. Yeah, he blessed you with a good home, and he blessed the other people around you with you being there. God gave you that job so that you can reach your coworkers, the people you're serving. God put you in that school so, yeah, maybe you could learn some things and go be used for his mission, or so that you could reach the people around you, or both. God's mission is so much more than just your pleasure and your comfort. We have to see that. God always blesses us so that we can bless others. And yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the whole idea here. We have to see that we are a witness. That's primarily what our purpose is. God's spirit has come to us so that we can go to others. Pastor Derwin Gray, pastor of Transformation Church just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, he says it like this. God could have just taken us to heaven the moment that we believed if he'd just been trying to build the church himself. Right? If, we did, if, if that's all he was trying to do is just build the church himself, then he would have snatched us up into heaven the moment that we believed in him. And we wouldn't need to live out the rest of this life. But that's not how God set it up. He set it up so that we could participate in building the kingdom with him. That's not how he did it. He's left us here to impact the world with the gospel, to create more worshipers, to be his witnesses. And that's really our purpose now as his people. That's why he's left us here. You know, our creation mandate from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is to be fruitful and to multiply, right? We want to be fruitful, be like God, bear his image in the world, and multiply, have a bunch of babies, multiply, spread across the globe, right? But now, see, in Christ, the gospel has given us the fulfillment of that so that we have a recreation mandate. We're to bear fruit, fruit of the Spirit. We're to multiply, Jesus followers, disciples, that's what it looks like now. That's our purpose. He's, recre- he's recreating us so that we have a new purpose now so that we can share the gospel with those in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the purpose of the church. That's your purpose if you're sitting here and you've believed in Jesus. You have no other purpose. That's the one goal, to be his witness in the world. But see, that will never happen, and you'll never get to see God use you in that if you don't personally own the mission yourself. So write this down as well. We each have to own the mission to go. We each have to own the mission to go. Now, I've told you this before, but my role as a pastor isn't to do the mission. It's actually to equip you to do the mission. Ephesians 4.12 says that I should be here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, of course, I'm trying to live on mission myself in my own personal life and all of that. My role here is, as the, a pastor at this church is to equip you to go and live out your purpose, the mission, to be a witness in the world. My job is to develop and equip you for that. So often people look at the pastors and the staff of a church to drive the mission. And, and, and you know, why aren't we doing this or why aren't we doing that? My question to somebody if they ask me that is, why aren't you doing this or why aren't you doing that? You have the power of the Holy Spirit residing in you. You go and live on mission how God called you to live on mission. Let's, let me help you do that. Let me show you how to do that. I'll, help, I'll walk beside you in that. But while I'll, I'll try to make decisions and do both of the, the things that, as best I can, as, which is to share the gospel, to, to do all that, to raise up more believers here, and even to diversify our church, right? We want to look more like heaven, and that's part of what it looks like to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? We're going to be a diverse church. We're going to make decisions as, as elders here to do those things, to grow in numbers and to grow in diversity. We'll try it and do our best. But really, the only way that's going to happen is if you take the mission seriously and you own the mission yourself. That's how we're going to grow, and that's how we're going to be diverse, is if you own that mission to be a witness wherever you're at. 
wherever you live, work, and play. That's your Jerusalem. Those are kind of the big three spheres of your life. But it also means going into places you might not otherwise go, like a Samaria to you, perhaps. Maybe for you, that'd be going to serve in a school in Northwest Roanoke, where you would otherwise never go. Or maybe it'd be going into Southeast and go serve at the rescue mission and serve the homeless folks that, that are down there. Or maybe it's entering into the foster care system here. Or maybe it's serving at the pregnancy care center here. Or maybe it's some other type of organization that gets you around people you would never otherwise be around, the people who are Samaria to you. That probably also means that some of you guys need to start consider going to the next church plant that we support. Or, or moving with a greater purpose other than just going with a job, right? Because that's not your primary purpose. Is your primary purpose to be a worker or a witness? You got to think about these things. Maybe some of you guys need to go overseas. Man, that is going to be such a fun day when we get to send somebody out to go plant another church or we get to send somebody out to go plant a church over in India or, or in the Middle East or in Southeast Asia or something like that. Man, that is going to be such a day that we celebrate here as a church because that's what we want for you guys. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. But I know in saying all of that, some of us are already making excuses. Well, I can't go. I just don't know how, or, you know, I don't have the time, or I'm too afraid, or I don't have the knowledge, or whatever reason we might give. But listen, God's Spirit has come so that we can go. You have the power of His Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit in your life by saying no to your very purpose. Don't do that. You have His presence, His power. And the root of all those excuses that you make may be an identity issue in your life. Maybe you're still not convinced that God saved you to reach others. Maybe we still think that he saved us for ourselves. But remember, our purpose for being here is to be fruitful and to multiply fruit of the Spirit, multiply disciples. And if you miss that, you're missing a major part of what it means to be a Jesus follower or a Christian. If you don't, if you don't understand that, then I, I don't think you maybe understand fully the gospel just yet. Because the gospel saves you so that you can then go and save other people or be a part of God saving other people through you is more accurate. Yeah, God wants you. Yes, he does. He loves you. He wants you. But he wants others too, and that's why he's left you here. He's going to use you to reach them wherever you are. And if you struggled with that this week or this year, maybe you've struggled with it forever. <laughs> maybe you're like me. I totally understand. I struggle with it too. I, to I, I totally get it. You're like, well, you're a pastor. You know what to say. I don't. I promise you. I promise you I don't know what to say in given situations. People throw things at you. You don't know doubts and skepticism and all that. Yeah, I'm, I'm scared sometimes to share the gospel. I totally understand. And sometimes if I'm being honest, I totally struggle with caring for people even enough to broach the subject. You guys, I've, I've told that to a lot of you guys. I, I struggle to care about others sometimes. I, want, I care about myself. I just want to go home and I want to be quiet. I don't want to, well, as quiet as we can be with three kids, but I want to go home and sit down on the couch, right? I don't want to go and engage my neighbors with the gospel who don't know Jesus. You know, that's a comfort. That's a selfish issue for me. So I totally understand this. But listen, my fear for you today is that you're going to leave here filled with the wrong stuff. And saying all of this, you're going to leave here filled with the wrong stuff because we know we should be sharing. We know we should be living on mission. If you have the Holy Spirit, he's convicting you. You know that you should be doing this, so you feel guilty. You feel ashamed that you're not living this way. You think you need a kick in the pants so that you'll soar this week and you can share the gospel and you'll be happy because you're doing the right things. But listen, the power of the Spirit comes from believing the gospel. Jesus came to us. He died for us, not despite the fact that we sin, but because he knew we sinned and needed it. That's why he's died for us, 
So you can write this down. He knew how terrible we'd be, and he came anyway. Jesus came to us so that we can go to God. That's the gospel we have to believe. You've got to be filled with the right stuff. It means no matter how much you do or don't do in your life that's good or bad or whatever, it means no matter how much you do or don't share your faith this week, if we can apply it to what we're talking about today, Jesus still came for you, and he still loves you, and your identity is still in him. He's shown you more grace than you can ever possibly imagine. And when you really believe that, there's something so freeing about God's radical grace in your life that elicits a response of love and excitement and joy and then a desire to go and tell others about that same grace that you've experienced. I talked to a guy in our church just this week. He came over to my office and he was just telling me about how God has changed his life. He became a Christian here, I think is what he was articulating. He, he never understood what it looked like to live this way. And he told me, he's just like, man, I've never felt this way before. Something's like radically different in my life. I think that's so awesome. He was like, man, what do I do? That's what he, he came to ask me. What do I do? He's like, well, man, I mean, this is great. Like, go deeper and deeper into the gospel. Believe this more and more. Apply this to your family. Apply this to your life. Go read some resources and soak this up and go share it with other people, right? Man, it was just such an encouraging meeting because God had radically transformed his life. And he did it through the church, through somebody sharing the gospel with him and showing him that grace that we're talking about. Now he's just overwhelmed with joy. He's ready to go live on mission. That's what happens when we believe the gospel. We're filled with God's spirit. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard in our own lives, about how God's changed us and what he's meant to us and what that grace means to us. Yeah, we're guilty. We're ashamed. We're wrong. We're in need. And yet God has come in and he saved us despite all that, really because of that, because of our need. God is so gracious to us. And we have joy and we want to let it overflow to other people. And there's this progressive disconnect that might happen in American Christianity. But when we really experience the gospel, it becomes a progressive reconnect. Because now we can't get enough of God's word and, and spend enough time with God. Now we can't spend enough time with other believers gathering with them and grouping with them. We can't give away enough money because it's so joyful for us. We can't share the gospel enough because we love it so much and we want to see people's lives transformed right before our very eyes. We can't get enough of it when we're filled with the Spirit, when we're filled with the right stuff. And so as I close out our time today, I want you to just think about what this means for you practically. It doesn't mean go out and try harder. It means believe the gospel today and then let that overflow to others in a very natural way in your lives. And so I just want to commend to you one model that we use here. We had a sermon series on it that I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to from the spring called Bless bless someone this week, man. It's just so natural. We, we have an entire web page devoted to that on our website. I think we have some handouts on the, on the table on the way out. We do have those handouts on the way out if you want to hand out from that bless series. But we have an entire website, redemptionroanoke.com slash bless. Go there and look at this. And I won't belabor it because you can go read there. But man, always begin with prayer. Pray for God to reveal who you need to go and love and serve and share with and then pray for that person once you have that person in your life and then go listen to them with intentionality. Listen to their story. Listen to what's going on in their life. Eat with them. Eat with purpose. There's something about gathering around a table that really helps you connect with people in a deeper way and then go serve them sacrificially. Serve them in a way that after you've listened, after you've been around them, what do they need? How can you serve them? And then of course, finally, you can't leave this out. You gotta share your story. What has God done for you? Because if you're filled with the Spirit, then you're going to speak, right? 
So speak about what God has done in your life. Who can you bless? One of those realms of your life in which you live, where you live, work, and play. God's Spirit has come to us so that we can go to others. Who are you going to go to the gospel with this week? And if you're here, one more group that I want to speak to real quick, and you're listening to this whole thing, you're not sure you believe any of this. Maybe you're not sure you buy into the whole thing. You're still skeptical. You're not quite sure about Luke. I would encourage you to do two things. I would encourage you to go back and read the gospel of Luke this week and then read Acts and see what Luke is talking about. He's talking to skeptics. Just go and read it. Go read it on your own and see for yourself what Luke's talking about because I guarantee people have just made assumptions about what Christianity is because again, maybe you thought that Christianity meant you got to be a better person. You know, now that you believed in Jesus, now you got to go and try to do some things this week and that's not it. Yeah, you're going to do some things but it's always out of an overflow of love and thankfulness. And so if you're not a believer, I would ask that you just go read the Gospel of Luke and maybe the Gospel or, or the Book of Acts as well. But then I would also encourage you to believe today. And maybe you're right at the edge and you haven't ever considered some of this stuff. Maybe you feel the Holy Spirit, if we can say sense here a little bit. You know, maybe you're feeling that conviction. That conviction is from God's Spirit coming upon you. I would just encourage you to believe in Him today. Don't resist that. We're going to have prayer counselors up front at the end of the service who would love nothing more than to pray with you through that. We're all going to respond now. So let me pray for us and enter a time of response. God.